Do I do the whole introduction or do I do my songs? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I'm so excited about these songs. I love country, country I, music. You, you do have to like uh, sing a couple of bars for us. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Grace Pratt. I am the behavioral medicine faculty at a residency called Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and I'm joined by several of our co-hosts, and we're going to be talking about all about rural practice today and thinking about integrated care in that setting and all of the unique opportunities and challenges that that brings. Um, as we're introducing ourselves, I love to always start with a bit of an icebreaker question. And so as I was thinking about rural practice and thinking about COVID and thinking about just life in our world right now, um, I don't know if this has been the case for you all, but there are some times in being trapped in my house that I just have needed to get out. Uh, but right now there's nowhere to go. It's not like I can just go to a coffee shop or um, go to the library or some of the other usual places that I would go for that escape. And so I have found myself just taking a drive. Uh, and if I can find a back road or find a drive into the country and just let my mind wander and listen to some music, that's been a pretty good escape for me this last six months of um, pandemic. And so my icebreaker question for you as we're thinking about those country roads and rural practice is if you were going to take a drive this afternoon for a little decompression, what would you be listening to? Tell us kind of what's what's been in your ears lately. So uh, let's do some introductions. We have Dr. Bridget Michi. Do I do the whole introduction or do I do my songs? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I'm so excited about these songs. I love country. <laughs> I, you, you do have to like uh, sing a couple of bars for us. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so I'm Bridget. I'm clinical psychologist by trade, director of behavioral health for uh, integrated healthcare in um, Yakima, Washington. And uh, so, yeah, I made a really nice list of pop country. I got a thing for, <laughs> for pop country. I went to Nashville for the first time last year doing some consulting work and I just had a blast. So I like Jason Aldean, Sam Hunt, Blake Shelton, Lady Antebellum, really anything that has that pop country feel to it. And the interesting thing is I did not like country music until I was in graduate school in Missouri in my mid twenties. I had always just, I, I guess my ears couldn't take it. And then you hit a certain age and loved it. So uh, really glad that I opened my mind to that world. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Those are those are good kind of roll your windows down, listen to kick up some gravel sorts of songs. Uh, we also have Dr. Christine Borst. Hello, whatever time it is that you're listening to this. I am Christine Borst. I'm an adjunct professor with Arizona State and a lot of other things, which I think is just what I'm going to go with from now on. Um, Wanted a, a children's book author, mom... Uh, all the things what it, who knows what i'll decide surgeon. today yeah exactly muralist this afternoon i think so That's right. we'll see um so my kids actually introduced me to this song and i know some people are so over it but 
I could listen to it forever. Um, it's actually the Old Town Road remix by Lil Nas and Billy Ray Cyrus, which I just love some good hip hop. Um, and the other song that we just love, we used to, I remember when we moved to our new house a couple years ago, every morning, the whole family, we would play this. It's called Good Morning by Max Frost. And if you haven't heard it, you just need to play it and blast it with your windows down, even if it's the afternoon. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. I just wrote that down because I'm going to look that song up. And I have a playlist of dance party music with my kids. Uh, and it sounds like that might be one that would go on there. Uh, then we have Dr. Neftali Serrano. Hey, everybody. Uh, it's glad to be here with our podcast team. Uh, this is a, one of the highlights of my month, just to chill with this wonderful group of people. I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association and a clinical psychologist as well. So music. So I'm picturing a nighttime trip. For some reason, music sounds better in the car at night. I don't know what it is, but I love it. It's just like something about the sensory deprivation or whatever. And I'm not a big fan of country, but the closest I can come to country is uh, Miley Cyrus. I think she's got just that kind of like close to country, but really more on the poppy side. You know, with most of her songs, there's some of her songs that are in my country. And I'm thinking Party in the USA um, and some of her also slower songs that are very much like Janis Joplin-like a little bit. Um, I think she's got some depth to her little voice. And, and just to show you that I'm such a not cultured person, the other artists that I would listen to, and I know I'm going to get, I should get like a bunch of hate mail for this, but... I really like Britney Spears. Dude, it's not to like our no. listeners can't see us, but we're all nodding our heads yeah. and totally I into want, it. I want that hate mail because I went and saw her in Vegas a couple of years ago, and it was oh. awesome. Yeah, I, I, I think she's pretty awesome uh, yeah. as an artist anyway. So yeah. Well, no hate to be had here. You know, my kids are five and three, and we've been talking a lot about not yucking someone's yum that you like what you like and we all have our tastes and um, we all should be excited to like the things that we like. So far be it from me to yuck your yum, Naftali. <laughs> um, I like the more 2020 Miley Cyrus where she gets, she gets, she gets down. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you listen to her new stuff, Naftali, but it's. Uh, uh, I have. It's yeah, something. she does. Yeah. And, and she gets like pretty it. real, which I like. She's yeah. a feminist. So whoop, whoop. Mm -hmm. I want I think the listeners the to know that this father-daughter mention that Neff and I just did was not planned. The Billy Ray Miley situation. No, it was not. Whoa. Not at all. Whoa. <laughs> uh, I think those are all excellent choices. I have been listening lately to an artist who's new to me. She's from Michigan, and she's a folksy sort of singer. Her name is May Earlwine, and she has an album called Mother Lion that's my absolute favorite of hers that I've just been loving all of her work. And so that is who I would put on. I've been listening to her pretty nonstop. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks for sharing those recommendations. I almost feel like we should put a Spotify playlist in our show notes for this month yes. uh, to share some of our recommendations with our listeners. And um, we, we love to kind of have that conversation. So just a little peek at what's ahead on the show. We're going to have our conversation about rural practice that I referenced earlier. We also have an awesome special segment for you today. Neftali did an interview with an old friend and colleague of his, 
the co- friend and colleague's not old, but they go back a long way. Um, yeah, we're, we're old enough, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Randy Taylor, and I'll let him give a little more introduction to that in a little bit. And, and their conversation is all about implicit bias, which is just such a wonderful extension of the conversations that we're having and we need to continue to have about the work that we're doing and, and the social context of that work. And then also we have a few news and notes to kick off with. So let's start there. All right, news and notes. Uh, Conference is coming up sooner than you think. I know I'm always ahead of people with the conference because my head is in the conference from the start of the year, well, beyond the start of the year. We're really excited about this year's conference. It is virtual, and uh, the dates are October 7th to October 10th. But the news item here is that by the time most of you are listening to this, so just be a few days away from really the start of the first events related to the conference, what we call extended learning opportunities. So it's events on Thursdays in September where we get these deep dives into key areas. Things like leadership for behavioral health directors is going to be a segment there led by a a great group of people with lots of experience doing implementation and leadership development, et cetera. Um, There's going to be a segment on the collaborative care model led by Jürgen Anutzer from the Ames Center out of Washington. Uh, And then in October, we actually have a couple of sessions on October 11th, right after our conference, on the PCBH model, a PCBH community forum and a extended learning opportunity on the diabetes uh, certificate that's offered by the American Diabetes Association. So check this and all the other extended learning opportunities on the conference website, integratedcareconference.com. Again, these are deep dives, so they're two to three hours in length typically and are just a great training opportunity for folks who just want to gather around a specific topic and spend a little bit more time than what you usually have at the conference. And then conference-wise, we're so excited uh, about the plenary experiences in particular. We've got, we just had a meeting yesterday with a group of CFHA members who are going to serve as panelists for a, a reaction, a response to COVID and to the Black Lives Matter movement. And sort of where should that take us as a community? What action do we need to take as individuals in our institutions uh, in response to this, to this moment? Um, it's going to be like a debrief. It'll be cathartic uh, for us as a community. Um, and that's just one of four awesome plenary experiences that we have. So again, check that out on integratedcareconference.com. And remember that coming to the conference is a way of supporting our association. Um, so your attendance uh, gives us the energy and finances we need to make things work as, a, as an organization. Uh, that's one news item. The other news item is just some really good news. Like I know that we're all tired of hearing silver linings by this point. Um, I, I am in a way, you know, <laughs> uh, this has been a, this has been a tough uh, road for most of us to hoe. Um, yet there really have been some really good things related to uh, movement with integrated care in particular. Um, in the news, Walmart has uh, made a commitment to grow some version of integrated care at their health centers that they're uh, growing at each of their uh, superstores. And so uh, this is a huge commitment on the part of a huge employer to say, you know, integrating behavioral health and medicine makes a lot of sense. 
Um, and uh, we're really excited to see what happens. We're hopeful that the version of integrated care that gets developed there is, is actually integrated and um, hopefully also really accessible to populations that need it because Walmart certainly is in a position, as we're gonna talk about today, to serve underserved populations, especially rural areas. So for all of the concerns we might have about big box stores like Walmart, at the very least, we can feel real good that there's potentially some really good access that could be happening with a major, major player. And of course, if Walmart does it, what that means is that it, it, it sort of shines a light on this whole idea that other systems need to follow suit. And that hopefully we feel will push things forward across a variety of different kinds of systems in a different way than has happened with FQHCs and community mental health centers. That's really one positive thing. The other thing that, that uh, I've been a part of recently is uh, some discussions with the American Medical Association. Um, they have reached out to CFHA to help with some of their new initiatives around uh, behavioral health integration. They're trying to shine a spotlight on the importance of integrated care. Um, I think COVID has made it just so obvious that uh, physician practices are in need of integrated behavioral health support that uh, they're, they're taking this seriously on a, on a level that I've never seen before. Uh, they asked us to participate in an online forum uh, a few uh, about a month ago, and then they're putting together this toolkit right now on their site uh, that's uh, physician oriented uh, to to help guide practices and implementation. So, this is really good news. So, for those of you fans out there of integrated care, I, I hope you feel encouraged. I hope you really feel like that hard work that you've been doing in your corner of the world to promote this, to train people, to spread the word. Um, all the folks, all the stuff that we do every day that doesn't feel like it does anything, but you know, it gets us to these places where um, these major players start paying attention and saying, yeah, this is a great idea. Now we may never get any of the credit for it. Who cares? Um, I just, I just care that it happens, you know, and that, you know, as we're going to talk about today, that folks, particularly in underserved settings, really get access to the highest quality whole person care, um, that they can get. So that's our news and notes. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't know if I'm the only Shark Tank fan here on our group, but it seems like when people have products that make it into Walmart and make it into the big box stores, there's just, and just what you're talking about, and this is a good, you know, point of transition, um, that it, it spreads the awareness, it spreads the availability and the accessibility because for better or worse, Walmart's everywhere. And in some places, that's all they're able to access. So let's, let's go ahead and kind of move into our conversation about rural practice because we've kind of opened up with that news item and about how this may be expanding. And I think all of us, um, as I'm looking around our, our circle here, have some experience either practicing or consulting or being involved in integrated care in a rural setting. And so I, I'd like to start with just a really broad prompt for us. What are some of those unique opportunities and also unique challenges that come with that rural setting? Oh man, where do you start? I know. I think it's interesting because we learn certain things and certain rules in grad school, right? And I think that a lot of times these are in the best case scenarios, 
where there are a lot of resources. And when you're in rural integrated care, it's just not the case. So all of a sudden, these things that you know, even about you know, dual relationships and boundaries, those look different because the person who is, you know, the receptionist at the office, that's also the only, you know, physician primary care place. And there isn't a mental health provider for 30 miles. And so all of a sudden it's like, well, what the heck do we do? They need help. They need services, but they're also, it's just, it gets really complex really fast. And all of a sudden you lose that black and white thinking and you're just swimming in gray area. Yeah. And I think uh, that's really a good place to start because resources and it is what ought to dictate the, how you arrange services. And so what you'll often find, what I'll often find is in, in rural settings where you'll have a mental health practitioner who's practicing in a specialty model, they, they're not adapting their services to the setting because how could you work with like a tiny number of people when there's like a bazillion people who need access to care? So you need to kind of adapt that approach to, to make sure you're providing services in an underserved area. Um, but on the flip side of that, I've also seen where it's really hard if you are in an integrated practice to sometimes maintain the boundaries of that service because of the need. So, you know, like there's not a pediatric specialist in this area for like till the next state. Right. And, and yeah, you don't usually do that kind of work. Um, but then you feel pushed and compelled sometimes to like, oh, do I stretch the model here and spend a little more time with this patient? Do I, you know? So that struggle, I think, is a real struggle as well in, in rural health. It's sort of like designing your services to meet the needs of most of the people, uh, but then, you know, having needing to have boundaries because you can't do it all. You know, you can't be the jack of all trades in a rural setting as well. So I, I find that really fascinating kind of tension. Yeah, I think that it's just such an amazing opportunity. That's, that's where my mind just keeps going. Uh, we're in rural, well, Yakima is a very interesting place. It's like technically urban in some parts, but the whole entire feel is very rural. And then we have some the distal clinics that are straight up rural. And so there's this big, I don't even know what we want to call it perspective that, Oh, well folks in rural America don't want mental health support. And I think what they don't want is judgment. I think what they don't want is over pathologizing and being told what to do and having some know-it-all come in and tell them how to live their life. I know that's a gross generalization, but that's kind of from what I've seen when I go in there humble interested and partner, I have no problem doing quote unquote, you guys can't see my air quotes, uh, mental health care in rural America. So the best advice that I ever got was from a mentor was to be, to be helpful. So walk into the room, be humble, be a normal person and find out about the person's life and uh, it's amazing what people will say and tell you. And the amount of times that I've had people say, you don't seem like the regular therapist or you don't really seem like a psychologist. You actually help me. And now how sad is that? Like you actually help me. That's like the 
So uh, I just yeah. think that the opportunity there is so amazing. Uh, and to just be on that medical team and to just walk in and get something done and be helpful. It definitely aligns with my experience too, of just a, a get it done attitude. Uh, that's, that's very to, uh, germane to cultural rural America of like, you know, let's get it done. And as long as you I agree, as long as you come in with that understanding of that culture and, and, and are helpful and real, um, don't have pretense uh, about you. Um, th- there's a, there's a willingness to work there and get real, real fast. <laughs> That's uh, that, that can be really uh, interesting and really productive as well. Um, but then, you know, one of the challenges I find is like, you really do have to be thinking about um, how much time you have with that person, because when they're coming from so far away, I mean, I've had patients who right now I'm seeing a patient via uh, phone that, that's three hours away and um, some other folks that are about an hour away in southern part of North Carolina. So I'm always thinking not just about being helpful, but I'm also always thinking about um, barriers like transportation to the clinic and, and trying to be as helpful as possible and saying, if we need to do a phone visit the next time so you don't have to drive up and then we make sure we pair it with your medical visit when you come back um, you know, just do everything possible and make sure that we're not just mentally thinking, okay, you're going to come back, you know, in a certain time frame, and think that that's going to work out for the patient. You, know, you think a lot about strengths and drawbacks and telemedicine, you know, has a lot of promise, I think, for reaching people who don't live within convenient distance from a clinic. But then at the same time, there's connectivity issues. Um, some people don't have great service or don't have access to those utilities like the internet um, to be able to do a lot of the telemedicine services that we would otherwise provide. And then the further you are away from being a piece of someone's community, I mean, that is really part of the benefit of being able to join with, you know, a lot of smaller communities have the family doc who is, uh, you know, the town doctor and kind of takes care of everyone and being able to partner with that person, you know, so much when we're in integrated care, so much of the value of working with the team is being able to join that established community and trust. And if we are fighting against stigma, against mental health, then we're going to serve as sort of, uh, or mental health care, and we're going to serve as sort of an ambassador of this form of treatment, having that ally and the established provider that the, the community knows and trusts is a big piece for us. And so there's that back and forth tension of telemedicine as a wonderful opportunity to reach people and to expand access to services. But then also the further removed we are from their community, we run that risk of, again, being that person who's just coming in and wants to, the outsider coming in as opposed to a piece of, you know, the, the established what's there. When I was working in a very rural clinic, um, I, it was about an hour and a half from where I lived. And so I made it a point to when the staff would go out to lunch together, to go with them, to connect, to go to the little places where they would go so that I could really learn about the community because that was remarkably eye-opening for me to understand the community and the culture. And then it was amazing to see too how they accepted me and then would be much more likely to connect me with the patients who write, you already have buy-in with the people who work at the clinic because they've been going there their whole lives. So I think it's really important on a personal level to, to build that team. I think that's why it's so, I was just going to say real quick that I think that's why it's so important to have a strong foundational 
philosophy to your practice. So if you are, say, practicing in primary care behavioral health, really understanding the GATHER acronym and the four C's of primary care, that will help guide you if you're like, well, I'm not really sure if I should stay a little bit longer or if I should see them back a little bit closer than usual or further away from usual or something that doesn't always go exactly with the model. Again, you can't see my air quotes. Uh, so being able to understand that, hey, am I helping? Am I being a generalist? Am I being accessible? Am I doing, being team-based? Am I being highly productive? Am I being an educator? Is this routine? Having that really foundational in your mind is going to help guide you in those moments. And understanding those four C's of primary care is this the person's first contact? Is it comprehensive? <clears throat> is it coordinated? And am I helping with continuity of care? So if you're doing those things and a visit goes 40 minutes, like you're going to be okay. Yeah. And just for the folks out there uh, who don't know the GATHER acronym, do you remember the, the, what the acronym stands for? The one I just, uh, the generalist, accessible, team-oriented, high-productivity educator and routine. Ah, got it. Yeah. Perfect. I didn't connect the, that you had talked about that afterwards. Oh, sorry. So <laughs> it's, worth, yeah. it's worth the double emphasis, I think. It's worth, yeah. Yeah. There's just yeah. a lot of folks out there who are, are, are just still learning about this stuff. So I want to make sure they, they understand our inside, inside lingo. I just yeah, hope like, the one students are hearing this and they're like, yes, we had an yes. assignment on that. <laughs> yeah, it's from uh, Ryder and Hunter and Dob Myers 2018, and I might not have gotten the right order, but uh, it's kind of where they operationally define primary care behavioral health. Uh, it comes from that article. So, Christine, you, you alluded to this idea of flexibility earlier, and so one of the things I was wondering about that I hear a lot about in rural settings are the ethical issues related to like, because a lot of times the patients of the clinic are, are, well, it's the people who work there, like medical assistants, registration staff, even other physicians are actually patients of that clinic. And so there is this sort of um, uh, expectation that behavioral health staff, since they serve the patients of the clinic, are also going to work with those fellow patients in. So you could have, for example, a medical assistant who brings her daughter in for care for a well-child visit. The physician says, oh, you know, your kid's having struggle in school. Let me pull in uh, Dr. Borst to come in and work with uh, your kid. Um, so that's something I see a lot. I I'm wondering about how you've kind of either coached people before about, like, you know, to kind of work with those issues and kind of maneuver how to make that work. I think this is a really good opportunity, especially for trainees to be under constant supervision and really continue talking about it to make sure that everybody is on the up and up. Um, transparency, I think, was what we used all of the time, right? So I'm going to talk to, I want to make sure that the daughter understands what's happening, you know, that the mom, who also is my colleague, essentially, who is also a patient of the clinic, and the physician. So I think that understanding these are the limits of this, the confidentiality. These are, this is why it's a little bit of a sticky situation. Um, and I also think that it was much more of a trigger for me coming into a very rural area than for the folks who grew up in this area. They're like, well, duh, like we're used to this all of the time. And so really checking my own discomfort and talking that through and then just being as transparent as possible. And when, if it gets to a place that it starts to feel weird to, again, keep talking through it and see if there are other options that come up. 
Yeah, I, I think I've handled it very much the same way. The, the idea is, I think, trying to, in a rural setting, you just have to work with what you got, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Instead of like trying to pretend there's some ideal out there that exists, right? And it's like, I'm not going to let a patient of this clinic have substandard care because I have this ideal about where I could refer them to, even though there's really no place to refer them to. That doesn't also mean that I'm going to like, you know, go in without being mindful of some Mm -hmm. of the potential pitfalls, right? Like if I'm giving that kid uh, or giving that mom some, some parenting counseling as part of the intervention, uh, I'm going to be, you know, cognizant of the fact that there could be some transferential issues the next time we work together on the floor, mm-hmm. right? And if there, we, I rubbed her the wrong way with something I said, you know, we're going to have to work through that, right? The, the whole idea, though, is that in a rural setting, you cannot avoid that. You just have to work your way through it uh, as a human being and as a professional and um, do your best to keep those things as separate as possible. So an example of that for me is when I've done that, it just happened many times for me. Like I have to keep myself from like checking in in the hallway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, so how'd that intervention go? Or how are things going with the kid? You know, it's like, I try to keep the conversation clean in the hallway. And then when, it, when we're in the exam room, we're, we're focused on what's, what's happened there. It's little things like that that really do. And, and I like what Bridget, you were saying before. On the one hand, you can look at it as a negative or a hardship, but it's actually an opportunity. Like it is a, in, in a way, rural settings have an advantage of flexibility and advantage of a community, you know, that really does care for one another and is there for one another. And, and that has some terrific strengths. I think too, it's a risk benefit analysis. You know, you, you learn in training, okay, I have to have no dual relationships and this and this. And then you think, okay, what's more important, right? That they get the connection that they need or that we have a little sticky, you know, we navigate it sticky or that I just completely disconnect myself from the whole thing. And um, I don't know if we spend enough time with the students that we're training talking about real life is messy. And, you know, you just, you'd have to sit and think, okay, what do they need more? What would benefit them more? I think that that generalizes integrated care in general. Uh, just the fact that, and I won't go off on the soapbox, now is probably not the time for it, but when you look at ethics, you can't just look at it as mitigating negative things that could happen with who you're working with. You also have to understand that, is there something in your in the ethics that are actually causing more harm to folks that you're never going to see? So are your ethics preventing you from helping a huge bunch of folks uh, and preventing you from helping them at all? And so that's a side of ethics that I sure the heck, we never went over in graduate school of like, hey, are your ethics actually preventing you from helping a huge amount of people? And is that more harmful? Because we all know do no harm, but we think about do no harm to the person in front of us, which is really good. (laughs) And we want to do that, uh, have that be the standard. And at the same time, do no harm for all the people that you won't see because, you know, I will only do this and I'll only do that. It's just things that integrated care really has opened up. Totally agree with that. It's very messy. So I want to shift our focus a little bit because I'm thinking about a particular resident that I have in mind who is currently at the beginning of her second year. She, of her her three-year family medicine residency, she knows that she's going to go practice in a rural setting and she's having conversations right now with the clinic in the small town where she's going to practice. She's joining with an established physician who's getting ready to retire. And she's having conversations with them right now about 
wanting integrated care. She, you know, it's, I've, I've said before, this is my secret mission, right? I went to train the physicians who are going to leave here and demand behavioral health in their clinics. And then I want to train the workforce of therapists who are ready to go do this work. So mission accomplished in this direction. Amen. Um, nice job. So the clinic is excited about it. They're like, wow, we've never heard of this. This sounds like a really great plan. What do we do? And my resident, who is, you know, 15 months out of med school, is like, ah. And so I would love for us to, I, I know that she's not alone in that. And so I would love for us as we're thinking about providers, maybe who are listening to this and thinking, you know, I, I've heard about integrated care. I love the idea, but what would it look like to implement or administrators or whoever, you know, we hope that this might reach where's the starting point? Where is the very beginning, you know, chip away at, this is a great idea in theory. How do we start to put it in practice? Boy, there's uh, lots of places to start, but I think the one, one place I always start with is workforce, right? Because you need people to get the job done. And I've seen a lot of different iterations, but they all hinge on what the talent is that you have available because you, you you can only go so far with a particular approach based on the talent that you have right so there are some clinics that um, start off with and maybe they're they have a relationship with a psychiatrist and if they have a relationship with a psychiatrist and that's what they have to start with then i help them get started thinking through the collaborative care model i i usually provide some modifications so that the psychiatrist is doing some consultation type work, sometimes even a little closer than the pure collaborative care model has, um, just so that at the very least, you can up the game of all the providers for prescribing. Maybe you, you start screening more folks to identify folks who are struggling with depression or other, other issues. Um, and I like to broaden out the collaborative care model so that's not just depression focused so that, you know, primary care is about a whole lot of things. So especially in rural areas, you don't have access to, um, for folks with SPMI, you know, you may have folks on antipsychotics and they need some support. So if you have a psychiatrist, you start there. And sometimes it's actually a psych NP. That's often what happens in rural areas. You don't have access to psychiatrists, but you now have access to a psych NP. And so you begin to develop your integration based on the workforce. Now, if you have uh, an LCSW or LMFT or a psychologist, then you're going to start off with just trying to uh, help them grow their skills in a PCBH type model of care, right? And so that, that entails a good amount of training, reconfiguring the way they work, reconfiguring the way they think, assuming that that person has the attitudinal characteristics for doing this kind of work. Um, so, and, and I would say also uh, some, I've seen some situations where you have like a community mental health center somewhere in the community, or maybe a private practice that's in the community. And sometimes people will start there and they'll say, we're going to start a relationship with that clinic and maybe have uh, borrow a clinician to come in, which I, ju I would just want to be honest, statistically doesn't work out in the long run very often, um, but it, I have seen it work uh, to a degree. Um, and the reason is because it's just really hard to reconfigure specialty mental health for a primary care style of work. Um, so, but you have to start where, where you are with the workforce that you have, because again, the whole rule of, of rural work is you work with what you got. 
Um, and there's no ideal out there. Um, there's some clinics I've worked at. There was, they've, they've said, well, we were, we want to hire a psychologist and like, you know, it might take you two years to find a psychologist to come to this town. Right. I mean, that, that's not reasonable. You got to start with what you got and, and build off of that. So that, 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 that's, I think my approach. It's a good encouragement. And I just want to really emphasize this, that when we look at fully integrated systems who are doing this model well, they didn't get there overnight. They had to start somewhere. They had to get a foothold. And it takes time to build this model and to change attitudes and to change operations and to change a lot of things. And so starting with the passion for it and the knowledge that there's going to be challenges and setbacks, but a, a firm belief in the importance of this work brings so much energy to the process. And I think, I think that as far as an administrator, as your litmus test of what to do, because it's like, oh, you know, you know what to do with a nurse, an MA, uh, and a physician. Think of it along the lines of look at the BHC as being a primary care provider. So they're going to see patients in exam rooms. You're going to use their scheduler. Uh, you're going to all the like regular clinical operations that need to be in place for that PCP are going to be the same for the BHC. And so I think that's a really good place to start, start as far as a litmus test. Like, well, where are we going to put this BHC? Well, where do you put the physician? Where are they going to see patients at? Where does the physician see patients? And so that, litmus test will take you down a really good road uh, and when you're trying to just do this for the very first time. Yeah, the other setting other than primary care that, that often exists or sometimes exists um, somewhat contiguous to rural areas is our community mental health centers. So you will have community mental health centers who are doing what we call reverse integration where they're bringing in primary care into their settings. So that's the other example in a rural setting that can be really important. That is its own animal. Um, but has the same sorts of implementation criteria. You start with workforce, right? You need a, a primary care provider who has a willingness, openness to working with SPMI, um, has some awareness of mental health stuff. And then what I find a lot of these centers do is actually develop their own little PCBH service within the clinic so that the primary care provider is working uh, with a BHC alongside in their clinic. So it's not just the medical provider and then like referring out to all the specialists in the community mental health center because they, they still need that support um, right there with them um, just like they would in a, in a standard primary care clinic. So, so th and that, that's another important resource for a lot of rural centers um, who, who actually may have a community mental health center, may not, may not have a primary care practice in their setting. Um, there's all sorts of iterations like this. Same thing with hospital care. I mean, you've got a lot of rural settings that are losing their hospitals. And these hospitals are huge because people really like, get a lot of their care there, uh, work there, et cetera. And so in some settings, a hospital might be the main place for them to go and, and get care. Um, and so some hospitals try to uh, provide integrated care in their at least outpatient clinics right within their hospital. I'm always impressed by the creativity of the people doing this work. I mean, the more systems that I'm exposed to through CFHA and, you know, all of my professional association and, I mean, connections, just we are some creative people. And I'm really proud of this field and this group of innovators who are looking at the needs and looking at the unique 
opportunities in their communities and coming up with something new that will meet those needs. So this conversation has been just very uplifting and validating for me. And I hope that it has been an encouragement to our listeners as well. And we hope that, you know, if you have further questions or thoughts on our thoughts, send them to the listserv. Let's continue the conversation in our organization. Uh, I hate to cut us off, but in the interest of time, I know we need to move forward into our special segment. Um, Neftali, do you want to give a little introduction for that? Yeah, so I thought this would be an interesting sort of kind of interview because I interviewed my childhood friend. Um, his name is Dr. Randy Taylor. Uh, we grew up together uh, on the streets of Queens. There, yeah, I did my A quotes, Bridget, because, you know, I don't know, I didn't think the streets of Queens were that all rough and tough, but it sounds tough. We did get, although Randy, Randy does talk about getting his bus pass stolen, which, which has ha- happened to me on the streets of Queens. <laughs> Just a thing. So yeah, we grew up together um, and uh, Randy is uh, a Latino African-American and uh, we, we just grew up having a lot of political conversations and maybe hard for you guys to think of the teenage me, but the teenage me was, was uh, uh, quite frankly, a, a, a right-leaning conservative uh, Hispanic guy which um, is, is just a product of my upbringing and um, all of that. You know, we can get into that in another episode. Uh, so Randy and I would have these conversations because he was on the other end of the spectrum of things. And we'd have these like really spirited lunchtime conversations in high school, especially around just like, you know, um, uh, you know politics and race in particular. Um, and, and it's just a really interesting juxtaposition because I really did have a very different experience in large part based on my skin color. I'm a, I'm a white skinned Latino. And so I can really kind of hide in society, right? I mean, most people don't look at me and think I'm even Latino. Um, most people are surprised about that. And, and it just demonstrates, the interview demonstrates um, how different of experience he had he is an extremely accomplished professional. He's an emergency medicine physician. He works in, uh, in the city of New York at a hospital there now. He's worked in other settings in Virginia and other hospitals beyond that um, in the South. And he can speak to the ways in which just skin color still today makes a difference, uh, a real difference as far as what life in America is like, and in particular, what life as a uh, healthcare provider is like. So it gives us a window into implicit bias, into racism, into what it's like to be a black doctor. Um, and we also spend a little bit of time talking about what he thinks is a, uh, a way forward. You know, kind of how do we work on this? Um, and I love his very humble approach to that. And so I, I really hope you, you uh, enjoy listening to uh, Dr. Taylor's conversation. And I hope you, see, you hear a little bit of the affection in our uh, back and forth there uh, as, as two, two guys who sat around a lunch table in high school uh, reconnect. So this is uh, Dr. Randy Taylor. All right. It is my pleasure to have an old friend on the podcast, Dr. Randy Taylor. Uh, we grew up together in Queens, New York. 
which happens to be one of the hardest hit areas uh, for COVID. And we had, we grew up around a lunch table at uh, Townsend Harris High School in uh, Queens, New York, uh, talking politics, <laughs> talking uh, social justice issues. Right. Uh, and back in the day, Dr. Taylor knew me as sort of the hardcore conservative uh, guy. That's right. <laughs> uh, and, and he was the, uh, the hardcore liberal guy. And we had a bunch of friends around the table who were everywhere in between. So it was, uh, uh, these are the times that I remember very fondly because I remember always constantly being challenged by Randy in large part because I respected him as a person. So I was like, man, this guy really has uh, some things to say that challenged me as an individual. Uh, I've changed a lot in that uh, time frame, And so I thought, man, let's reconnect with Randy here given the moment and given his unique uh, ability to speak to this issue, both from the personal perspective of being Black in America, but also being a, a healthcare professional. So Dr. Taylor is an emergency medicine physician in New York City. And uh, so Randy, first, thank you for being here and thank you for taking some time to talk about this. Um, you're passionate about this. So my first question to you is, this is kind of a softball question, right? So we'll make it easy for you. Sure. Does, does implicit bias exist in medicine? And, <laughs> and if so, how? <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty easy one. So I guess, you know, do we breathe oxygen? You know, I mean, <laughs> that's right. yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, implicit bias is sort of everywhere. You know, if implicit bias didn't exist, we wouldn't call each other white and black and have all these different labels for each other, right? I mean, we're all human at the end of the day, but I think, you know, from the moment you come out of the womb, when you start watching cartoons, you start watching TV and, you know, your, your parents' experiences, you know, uh, definitely affect the way you look at things. And even, even me being a black physician, I sort of become aware that if I, if I see a white patient or a black patient, uh, you know, there's actually biases going on in your head that you sometimes have to recognize and, and control and say, you know, let me try to treat everybody the same. It's not very easy, I think, for anyone. And I think um, that's why there's so much importance in having diversity within medicine. And I think that's been a great push from I remember being in, you know, high school, like you said, or junior high school, they would have programs, some programs to try to increase the numbers of minority physicians, right? Because obviously you're going to identify and empathize with the people that you're most like, whether it be your race, who you live around and who you have most things in common. And when you see something that you don't understand, you might make an judgment. And I think that's where implicit bias definitely, you know, comes in. And um, I mean, I, I can remember being in medical school and walking in rooms and just seeing the way different patients get treated, right? Um, it may even be the type of language, how you address the person. And sometimes it's not just about race, it's about, you know, economic class as well, right? If you walk in the room, the guy has, you know, jeans on and a Yankee hat. It's like, hey, how you doing? What are you doing here? Versus you walk in the room and a person has on a tie and a, a dress shirt. It's, uh, hello, Mr. Schaefer, I'm your doctor. You, you know, sitting, it's a whole different approach. You know, and especially now with the emphasis on patient satisfaction, which I can go on and on about because 
the more satisfied patients actually have worse outcomes, right? But we still are practicing this. But, you know, I still get my bonus based on my patient satisfaction scores, even though have worse clinical outcomes. But, you know, money speaks uh, volumes. But that being said, um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously this is just my personal opinion, but I've seen from being a, a student to being a, a resident trainee to being an attending now, uh, you definitely see different uh, treatment based on uh, some of those implicit biases that you see. And I think it's well documented in the literature, especially I think one that's well known is pain medication, right? Um, you know, kids of African-American descent get less pain medication. Their pain scores are respected less. Sickle cell, you, you can go on and on. And it's something that I think People are just, you know, it's, it's something that's sort of programmed into you and you don't even know it, right? But, you know, obviously you said, like, I've always sort of been aware of it, probably because my father, he used to tell me about his own experiences. And he was a computer programmer. There wasn't a lot of uh, people of color in that industry back in the 70s and 80s. And he would tell me about his experiences. And he would always kind of tell me, like, Randy, you're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to be smarter. You're going to experience uh, uncomfortable environments where you're gonna, you know, I was just talking to my sister. She just, um, she doesn't want me to talk about this. So I'm gonna keep it vague, but she just got a position at one of the best companies in the country that's it's aching to get it into Harvard and medical school. So. Uh, you know, she's kind of hesitant about taking the position because there's only four people in that company that's going to look like her. And I said, wow, hey, you know, you're used to this. I said, we're, you're used to being the only one in the room, right? That's the way it is. And it's sad because it's now 2020 and we're talking about back in the 1990s and it's still the same situation. It's still like, you know, where I work at now, I you know, I, it's a great company and they're about diversity, but again, I'm only one of probably, there's only one other physician of color that is working in my department. And um, you kind of go around the country and it, it's kind of like that everywhere. So yeah. Um, why so is I wonder, I wonder, Randy, if you could speak to what, what would you recommend? And, and this is, I, I feel awkward even asking this question because I have the same feeling when people ask me about diversity issues related to Latinos, as if like I'm an expert on, yeah. you know, uh, diversity issues and being Latino. Like I'm just a Latino, like right. uh, that's just who I am. Um, and, I, and I do have expertise based on my experience. So uh, take, that, take the question with, a, with that background that I understand that it's awkward to be asked about these things as if you're like supposed to be the expert on this thing. But on the other hand, based on your experience and, and both as a physician and then and, and in doing good patient communication and, and trying to bridge cultural gaps when you feel them with a patient, um, and dealing even with same culture type dynamics, how would you counsel a, let's just say, Midwestern, white physician, behavioral health professional, anybody in relevant patient care, how would you counsel them to be more aware of the implicit bias that they bring to the table? Because I think that's the challenge. I think most people feel like, I'm a nice person, I'm kind, I'm compassionate, 
and and yet kind of can tend to miss out on some of the the ways in which without knowing it as you said they're operating based on that programming so what what would you say would be kind of how do you we deal with that implicit bias directly as as healthcare professionals i think the number one thing is about recognizing it acknowledging that it's there right i worked in many different places and you know i've been in rooms where people just don't see it and they just say hey like you just said like I'm a nice doctor and I'm nice to everyone and I make sure everybody gets the same level of pain medication. I give everybody six and morphine and, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's having a conversation at least and acknowledging that at least it's possible that there's a problem there because that's a hard thing to acknowledge. It's a hard thing to say that, yeah, you know, I may be biased towards a certain group because, you know, you don't, nobody wants to be labeled racist or prejudiced or, biased, whatever it is, but you have to at least say like, okay, when I'm walking down the street and I see an Indian guy in a hoodie and I see a black guy in a hoodie, do I react differently? Do I, or maybe, maybe you don't, maybe you grew up in the city and you don't have that issue and maybe you cross the street for both of them. Cause I know that's what I do. I, I, I grew up in the city and it's not all about race. Some of it's just like, I've been robbed when I was a little kid. Yeah, I had that's my right. Pass taken, you know, that's so, right. Even to this day, I, you know, I'm on alert. You know, I don't live like somebody in the Midwest who's probably seeing horses and, you know, I actually live down South and it, you, you have a different level of alertness when I'm in Atlanta versus I'm in New York City in the Bronx, you know, like that's normal. But you have to at least be able to say that these issues are there. And, and, and obviously what kind of supports that is data, right? You can just go through patients' charts and you can see what does the guy who lives in the projects, how do they get treated? How, you know, how quick, I mean, you just kind of see it at all levels, right? Where I've had the advantage of working in so many different environments. I've worked in a city hospital. I've worked at the, um, you know, boutique hospital that sees all insured patients. I've worked in uh, facilities that are diverse where you have half the community coming from Baltimore with, you know, some of the lowest economic demographic issues in the country versus you go left and now you're in Howard County and this is the number one school system in, in the country with, you know, all suburbanites and all college graduates. And it's amazing in that, you know, it definitely affects outcomes. It affects who goes to the cath lab when you're having a heart attack. Um, it affects uh, whether you get surgery for your broken ankle two hours after you arrive at the hospital versus you get put in a splint and get sent out to hopefully get an appointment in a month and then you end up with long-term arthritis, right? So, I mean, it's just, you gotta have the, the ability to say that there is a problem you know, because that's, I think that's the whole problem in this society is that, um, and it's, it's taught, right? That's, that's the whole thing. Like, I mean, when you're taught American history and okay, say Thomas Jefferson's this great hero, which in a way he was, but then when you learn, okay, he had slaves. Now you got to have an honest conversation about that. You know, was he as good as we were saying? Was he this iconic, clean character that we were all taught? And I think that's where me and you used to have arguments, right? Because I'm at home, I have my father, my uncle, my older brothers telling me like, hey, Randy, yeah, that's what you're being taught at school, but there's another side to that. 
So, and if you're just someone who's just only been exposed to like, oh, you know, there's no implicit bias. Everybody gets taken care of. Of course, if somebody's having chest pain, yeah, they're going to have a cardiologist call. They're going to go to the cat lab. They're going to get a stent placed in their artery and everything's going to be fine. Versus, you know, sometimes you make a phone call and the person on the other line is telling you like, yeah, I'm not that impressed. Let's just uh, watch them for a day or two. And you know, if this was a different patient, uh, the person would be driving in in five minutes and taking this person to the lab. And oh yeah, you know, that's yeah, actually get, hard you... to deal with as a person of color, you know, because yeah. I mean, you want everybody to get the best treatment. And when you're seeing different treatments for different people, sometimes you don't even realize it in real time. But when you look back on it later, you say, hey, you know, like these guys really came in with the same condition and got way too different. It's almost like you're practicing in two different countries. And you see that in different regions of the country. I actually saw that, like, New York City, Northeast, I feel like there's more of this uh, duty to do the right thing. And everybody, you know, gets a, a pretty good level of treatment. And, and you go in other parts of the country where insurance and ability to pay becomes more important. And obviously, when ability to pay comes into the factor because of the systemic issues with wealth, and you look at the wealth gap, you're gonna, I, I used to tell people like, you don't move down south if you don't have insurance and you're a person of color, because God forbid you get sick. I mean, you might go to the hospital and not come out of there, you know, like, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's it's true. And yeah, when you're in New York City and you have the city hospitals and the New York City hospital system, at least you know, you can go to a Jacoby or Jamaica hospital and you may not get the treatment you're gonna get at Cornell, but you're gonna get a pretty good high level of care. Whereas you go to some of these community hospitals down south that you know are about making profit, even though they call themselves nonprofit, you, you can really not get taken care of and, and have some bad outcomes. So Yeah, I I wanna summarize a couple of things you've said that are, are really important. So you spoke a while back about data. Um, I'm big on that. I think like feeding ourselves or institutions feeding data back to providers specifically related to implicit bias is, is crucial because we have to look and see what's actually happening to my patients. Yes. Like what are the actual outcomes and how does that break down across race and ethnicity? I think for us to really wake up and say, oh, wait a second. I can't just blame this on low SES and uh, all these other external factors. Cause yeah, insurance status matters, but it shouldn't matter. Right. As far as proceed clinical procedures. Right. Um, and yet it, it is, as you said, been well-documented. Like if you don't have insurance, your care is not the same as for folks who do have insurance. And I, I would encourage folks out there to just even think about just even what happens inside of you when you have a patient who you sort of label in your head important or maybe like a VIP, right? Okay. Something happens inside of you where you like you straighten up and you're like double checking your work. You're making sure that you're hitting all the protocols and, and that that patient is um, advocated for. Whereas the homeless patient, who comes in and what happens inside of you as far as how you go about, it. you may be kind, compassionate, have compassion for that person, but you know, there's something that naturally can happen inside where you may not be hustling for that person. Yeah. 
in the no, same you're, exact way. You ab you're absolutely correct. And um, I've worked in different places, some places where they don't have any what we call FOHs, Friends of the Hospital. And I worked at other places where half of the people coming in have their names on the wall, their, their name on the front of the hospital, or they donate. I've walked into rooms where people say, you know, I, I made that wing upstairs, so you better take care of me a certain way. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I do it myself. You have to check yourself, you know? And when, like I kind of brought up, when you see the guy in the Yankee head and jeans, that could be the CEO of Twitter. You know what I mean? You don't know who they are. And I always try to treat everybody the same. And I think everybody always tries to do that. But I think just like what you said, you can't argue with data, right? I mean, uh, numbers don't lie. So if you can, but you have to be willing to be looking at the data, right? You have to say, okay, there might be a, there might be a problem here, there might not, but are we going to put out data reports to look at the differences in CAT scan ordering for headache you know, across races? Or are we, are we gonna look at the doses of dilaudid versus morphine versus Toradol given by certain providers and, and, and also look at race, look at, you have to look at it because if you're not looking at it, then you don't know you have a problem. And maybe you don't wanna know you have a problem because then you have to deal with it, you know? And I'm just sure from clinical experience, there's a problem because, and especially it's, it's interesting with the recent, opioid issue right so you know i think we kind of had a good discussion about it where you know people who were using crack cocaine were demonized people who are not having problems with opiates are, are being sort of taken care of which is the right thing to do and probably should have been done for people who are using crack but now uh you know everybody you're a little bit i mean we we have registries now right that you have to check before you write a prescription and if you're not doing it well, you can get in trouble as a physician, right? But that also, there's the other side of that. Now you're limiting pain medication that people were in pain and that need this medication sometimes. I mean, yeah, opiates have a dark side, but they do have a bright side too. You know, if you're having ischemic bowel and terrible pain, you need pain medication. It hurts. And then, you know, I can see certain times, and got, this is not scientific, but I'm just... I've seen over my career where certain people just don't get morphine. You know, they're given Motrin or they're given Tylenol. And I'm, look, I'm scratching my head like, man, I want to give this guy some morphine, you know? And, and I feel like I do see a difference depending on the way you dress, are you a friend of the hospital, race, the way you can communicate your vernacular, right? If you speak very proper, you can advocate yourself versus, you know, you're a person who's just going to say, yes to whatever the doctor says. And you just see a wide spectrum of care. And I think it, some of that comes from implicit bias. So I think the number one thing is you first of all got to acknowledge that it's a problem. Then you got to look at the data and you, you've got to acknowledge your upbringing, right? You have to acknowledge what cable news you're watching, right? Every, People who watch Fox News and CNN have way too different perspectives on the same thing. That's the thing that I think I've realized most recently. Like you can see, um, I mean, Herman Cain, right? He just <laughs> passed yep, away. Yep. I mean, I think that is a disgrace. I mean, here's a guy who, you know, if you want to say, pulled him up by self by, by his bootstraps, is very successful according to the American media. and 
in the middle of a pandemic that's known, went to a large gathering with no mask at the age of 74, and now he's dead. You know, and I think that's a travesty. Like, he didn't have to do that, number one. It, it just wasn't smart. But you see the reactions to it, and it's, it's a completely night and day reaction, depending on which channel you're looking at. I just think that, that's, that's insane, you know? Like, we have yeah. to come to a better place where we kind of recognize that we can have honest conversations about the history of the country, what's going on now, and then do things based on science, right? I mean, to say that uh, you don't need to wear a mask at this point is just, you're just being political, right? You're just, it's just common sense. If I'm talking right now, this mist coming out of my mouth, it could get on your nose, on your mouth, in your eyes. And for people to say, oh, you know, masks are gonna make you sicker when surgeons wear masks for 12 hours a day. I'm wearing a mask, two masks, I actually wear at work for 12 hours a day. And it's just, it's just incredible, so. Just for the record, Randy and I are not in the same room while we're having this <laughs> conversation. So we are, we are maskless. The other direction is also toxic. In other words, we've talked about from, healthcare provider to patient, but um, I'm sure you have a story or two of patient to healthcare provider, right? And it just really, I think, highlights to me that the, every interaction you have with the patient is a cross-cultural interaction. And that's the one thing that I've uh, really tried to be conscious of in my practice, where every time I walk in a room, even if, with, with, if it's a Hispanic patient, I'm not going to assume I know that person. I'm not going to put a, a bunch of layers of understanding. I'm going to go on with some hypotheses maybe about where their background is. And if they're Hispanic, I have a little bit of a better way to connect because I'm Hispanic. But I, I assume every interaction is a cross-cultural interaction. Now, the difference is when I walk into a room, my skin is white and I'm white looking. And in fact, most people confuse me for like a European white of some sort. Like they ask me, oh, you look Italian or you look Greek. But you walk in with a different color skin. So tell me about what that's like and the reality of like, you walk in, you almost can't avoid running into that, uh, those, those bias type uh, situations. So what, what, what's that like? Yeah, you know, well, well it, it, it's, it's tough, actually. It's tough because there's uh, my internal thought about it. And then there's also the patient's reality, right? So I mean, again, and I think this goes back to upbringing, goes back to television, it goes back to movies. I am not what a doctor looks like, right? What does the doctor look like? I, I just said that to you, and a picture came into your head, and I bet you, every people, I, the people watching this, this the, 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 the perception that came into their head was a middle-aged white man with a little gray hair, probably with some glasses and a clean white coat on, and when you see me, you might see a basketball player. You might see a rapper. You might, you know, you might be progressive and even see a CEO of a business. And maybe you even see a doctor. But I think for the mass majority of people, I don't fit the role, you know. And it's not a negative thing. I, 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 I always talk about programming. I think we've all been programmed. And you know, when you, when you say Superman, you expect Superman to look a certain way. And that's why I think Black Panther was so important because kids of color got to see a superhero that looked like them. 
and people get all upset when we want to change the uh, race of Iron Man or Wonder Woman and they say, oh, it's not that important. It's very important because if they had more shows on TV when you were younger with black physicians and made it normal, I remember for myself, I worked at a hospital in Georgia and I'm a physician. I went to medical school. I'm in the medical field. And I was amazed because the cardiologist was black, the nephrologist was black, the neurosurgeon was black. And I'm, I'm like, wow, like I, 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 I was surprised, right? And even I walk into rooms with people of color, I'll, I'll say, hello, I'm Dr. Taylor. I'm the emergency physician taking care of you today. Have a whole conversation. And then they say, okay, Mr. Taylor, when, the doctor, when is the doctor coming? I'm wearing a white coat. I have a stethoscope on. I walked into the room of a 90-year-old Caucasian female the other day. And I said, hello, I'm Dr. Taylor. I'm going to be helping to take care of you. She gave me a look that said, you know, body language is, we understand body language. She said body, her body language just said, did he just say doctor? Then she grabs my ID, pulls it on a string and is, is studying it. And some of it may be, maybe she has some visual issues, but it wasn't just that, you know? So it's, it's, it's the thing where, how many times in my career have I been called respiratory? I look, oh, that's the other thing I am. I, I look like a respiratory therapist, right? So, <laughs> and that, you know, respiratory therapist, that's a great profession. I'm not, but I, I really get mistaken for a doctor, but I will get mistaken for what environmental, respiratory, mm -hmm. uh, all those sort of things. And you kind of learn how to just, I think as an emergency physician, because you're so focused on figuring out what's wrong with the person, you just kind of blow through it and you just say, yeah, no, uh, I'm not just Mr. Taylor, I am your doctor. I can tell you how many times I've been taking care of somebody for three or four hours. I've said I'm the doctor, the nurse has said I'm the doctor. Um, I've given them results, I'm, I'm putting their IV in. And then you have a nurse or administrator come and say, hey, that patient over there said the doctor never came in the room. They haven't seen anyone. And I, I, I'm swearing on my soul. I walked in the room and said, I'm Dr. Randy Taylor. I'm your emergency physician. I have a stethoscope on. So I don't know if some of you know, other, my other colleagues experiencing that, but I've experienced that. Uh, I almost yeah. experienced almost every other shift, you know, where... Yeah. You know, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in a dress shirt. I'm in a tie. I'm, it doesn't matter, you know, and it's, I, I think it's just because of the way society's programmed. And, and then you also, <laughs> and then you start to wonder, is it in your head? Are you playing right. the victim? Are you making this into a bigger issue than it is? And maybe you're doing something. Maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't say it loud enough. You know, maybe I need to be more direct and, and hand out a business card before I leave the room. And I can tell you, I've given business cards and still not be, <laughs> still be confused of what my role is. So it's, 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 and it's, it makes it difficult, right? Because then you work, you know, you, you, you can feel the patient is worried if you're going to take good care of them. So, you know, you, you after a while, you just got to do your job and just kind of yeah. push through it. And I, I can tell you, I've had black patients say, I don't want a black doctor. I want a white doctor. I've had that happen. It's not just something you see on the TV or in a movie show or, you know, an ER show that's trying to be thought-provoking or maybe just get ratings. No, it happens. It happens all the time. And it's sad because in 2020 
and it's still happening. And, and yeah. that's the thing. Like, I remember my father talking about being at his job for 30 years and then get him pulling the HR and them telling him, oh, well, you're going to be demoted because you don't speak English well. This is a person who went to English school because he grew up in Costa Rica and probably knows English more better than most Americans. Great writer, great speaker. And these sort of things are still happening and it's 2020. And he was telling me th these stories in the mid eighties. So that's, that's the thing that's sort of frustrating. But uh, I think especially with medicine, the importance of getting this out of the system is that it affects outcomes and it affects survival and lives and you know cancer detection everything like some people uh get a mammogram right away other people say oh, that's probably just a little allergy see you in a couple of years and then you know you have a bad outcome off of that so i think you have to like you said all the time challenge yourself uh you know if this was my family member or if this was my neighbor would i be giving them this several like if this is the friend of the hospital and, you know, maybe they don't have the same color or they don't have the cleanest clothes on or maybe their shoes happen to be dirty that day because they were working in the backyard. But you're assuming, oh, maybe this person's using cocaine, you know, because that happens. I see it all the time. And then the Utah comes back negative four hours later. And now the doctor's sitting there saying, oh, maybe he is sick. You know, maybe, maybe I need to admit this guy and not just kick him out, you know. And that's why it affects everything. It's, it, yeah. it, it, it really needs to be addressed. And I think data, recognize there's a problem and, and, and really every encounter challenging yourself, like how am I being, uh, how am I prejudging this person? And how can you erase that thought immediately and start over? Just keep starting over even during the encounter. I think that's what I try to do. Because I mean, I've done it myself. I've walked in the rooms and then you start having conversations and as a, as a veteran physician, one thing that I learned to do was say, hey, you know, what, what's your occupation? You know, not to say that should be important, but sometimes it, it lets you recheck yourself. Because you were saying, oh, I think this guy is just some guy off the street. And you find out, no, this guy's the CEO of a, of a big company. And it starts to, you know, kind of expand your mind and say, man, I walked in here with bias, just based on the way the person was dressed. If you're making bias just based on the way some person's dressed, imagine what you're doing about skin color with the way the society has been designed, from my viewpoint. You know, and there's oh, yeah. a lot of people who don't see that. They're like, oh, there's no problems and everything's been... One thing I try to do, like you said, is I try to understand from other people's point of view, too. Because I realized I was brought up as a Black person in a quote-unquote oppressed country. And my father told me how he was followed by the police, beat by the police. So I try to say, okay, what if I didn't grow up like this? How would I think? And I try to listen and try to be open. And I think that's the biggest thing. You have to try to be open to other people's opinions and experiences. Yeah. So you can at least address it. Because otherwise yeah. you think that this does not, a, it's not a problem. Everything's fine. Well, I think our listeners can agree we can listen to you forever, man. And I, I really appreciate the time today to highlight um, what this experience is like, both on the patient side and the healthcare delivery side, and then also on the healthcare provider side as a minority physician. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And um, the one thing I would say is, you know, it's clear to me the resilience that you've built up over time because it does eat at you 
when when you're perceived in that way and you have these interactions uh, time at a time, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the word microaggressions, but like what you're describing is basically like healthcare related microaggressions, right? Yeah. You're going to have to deal with time and time again. So um, I just want to express that I just appreciate seeing the resilience that I see in you and what you've been able to do professionally so that you can work through those microaggressions as well as, um, be open and be attentive to your own uh, biases and perspectives and things like that. But what you've described to me as far as uh, what it means to be a black physician is like universally true of all the black physicians I've ever interacted with. I don't think I've ever met a, a, a African-American physician who said, no, I mean, I walk into any room and, uh, you know, I'm treated just like everybody else. You know, I, I've never had one <laughs> physician ever say that. I mean, yeah. it's just like, you know, it's just a universal experience, literally universal, and which tells us there is a problem. I mean, yeah. like it's light as day. And my hope is that this moment helps us to highlight not just the criminal justice issues, which are obviously a problem, but that we can also kind of look inwards in healthcare and say, look, uh, these issues of disparities that we have, they're not just related to these other external factors that we think of, they're also related to what we do, the, the care we provide, the way we do things. And as you said at the beginning, also like who's in our ranks, right? Mm -hmm. who, who, who are the healthcare providers? Uh, and, and the lack of diversity is part of that problem as well, of course. So anyway, we could go on forever. Definitely, definitely. I could talk about this for days, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, no, it was, it's great. I, I appreciate you inviting me on. Um, you know, in these days and times, I it was funny when you contacted me, you know, internally with everything that's happening, you know, it was all sort of bottled up, you know, and um, I'm always, I was, I, I come from the generation where they say, don't talk about race, don't talk about politics, you know, be professional. So I was a little hesitant to do it initially. But I think um, it's something that needs to be talked about. And like I said, I'm just about growth and about being positive. And I'm trying to learn as well. I'm not claiming to know everything. It's just my experience. And um, actually, I have met physicians that you just described who don't, don't uh, have those experiences, right? But again, I always think it's, it's up to upbringing, right? Where I, where I grew up is different than someone who grew up in Long Island and maybe had a little bit more money and maybe weren't maybe even if they're black they weren't around black people when they were younger so they would look at me and when i was saying hey that's not right they were like oh you you're being extra man you're 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 bringing up this color game man like it's it's not like that because a lot of times you know a lot of people say oh i've made it right i i'm a physician i make a decent salary and i could easily just be like no there's no problem look at me i look what i did you know i'm herman cain i i I, I'm great, you know, uh, this country, if you work hard, no matter what, nothing's bad's gonna happen to you. And I, I'm not saying I don't have a great life. I'm not saying I haven't been blessed and been fortunate, but I think because of the way I grew up and you know, my uncles, my fathers, their experiences, I'm, I'm more gonna recognize when there's an issue. So I think that's why it's important to have diversity, right? If you, if you have two students of color in your medical class and you have 200 students, you're not going to know what's going on. You're just going to be in a little bubble. So you have to break that bubble. And there's many qualified people out there. Get your staff diverse. 
if your staff's not diverse, invite people from another hospital, have them talk to you about their experience so you can learn about it and try to try to prepare for it and just act it because it's there, whether you want to admit it or not. You, you, you can have data to support that, to have the difficult discussions with people that don't want to talk about this. Because if you put it out there, okay, 30 CTs done on these people, three done, you can't argue with that. And you got to say, okay, why is that happening? And then you can go from there. Hope one is for everybody to grow and become a better society. And it, nobody can argue with that if you're trying to get better. That's all I, that's all I, I would say. But I appreciate well, the opportunity to talk about it because it was, it was, for me, it was therapeutic with all that was going on. I can't talk about it everywhere. So it's good to come on and just share kind of my inner thoughts with you. I appreciate it. Dr. Randy Taylor, my friend. Yeah, I'm feeling we might invite you back at some point. I'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. I'll be glad to come right. Thank you, Nafali, for conducting that interview and sharing that conversation with us. We're closing out our time in the podcast today, and although he was unable to join us for our recording, Deepu gave us the gift of recording our closing meditation, and so we will listen to that. Our closing thoughts come from Sonia Renee Taylor, who is an author, poet, spoken word artist, speaker, humanitarian, and social justice activist and educator. She's also the founder of the body is not an apology movement. This quote is often misattributed to Brene Brown. Brene Brown herself has made the correction. Sonia Renee Taylor says, We will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Bridget, Christine, and Naftali. Thank you, Kevin, for doing our editing for us. Thank you for our listeners. We'll see you next month.